Spring 1989. The breeding season is in full swing. The industry itself is on the edge of collapse. But the newborn foals gambling in the paddocks of the Hunter Valley, the Waikato, at Ngambi or Anguston are particularly interested in balance sheets. They have the sun on their backs, mum's milk in their bellies, and limitless possibility in their future. This is the stock that ultimately moves the breeding industry. The 80s had been about a different kind, but the foals, mares, and more importantly, the stallions would be the ones that pulled Australasian thoroughbreds out of the mire. From the TDN Australia and New Zealand, this is annuals. Season 1989-90, the shuttle takes flight. The Australasian stallion population of the late 1980s was not as colonial as some might have thought. Sure, the Star Kingdom line had flourished in Australia and even gained a toehold in New Zealand. But for every Biscay, Kauru Star, Bletchingly, Marskay or Licorice Stick, there was an Imperial Prince, a Viceregal, a Yates, no, not that one, or a Pompey Court. The Big Daddy was, of course, Sir Tristram, the Irish-born son of Sir Ivor, that a future Sir, Patrick Hogan, stood at his Cambridge stud in New Zealand. It was a cosmopolitan stud book, but aside from a few notable exceptions, champion sires Amazon was a Group 1 winning Aga Khan product, the imported stallions tended to be underperforming blue bloods, overperforming no bloods, or had already failed somewhere else en route to the Antipodes. In Europe, names like Blushing Groom, Sadler's Wells, and Nureyev held pride of place at the top of the tree. Halo, Aladar, Fapiano, and Danzig starred stateside. These were the heavy hitters, and Australasia was playing catch up. But there were players that were determined to do just that. An upwardly mobile farm was Sejinho. For decades, the private fiefdom of the legendary Lionel Israel, it was home to the exceptional Star Kingdom horse Kauru Star, a powerful chestnut that, if you sent someone down to central casting to find you a masculine equine, would pick himself. Kauru Star sighed two slipper winners, Luskin Star and Full-on Aces, classy galloper Marceau and a paddock mate at Sejinho. Orealis, a handy stallion. Sejinho also stood Oakley Plate winner Turf Ruler and one of the early northern dancers, Yalla Native, in the 80s. But the farm needed to level up to compete globally, as Tony Bott explains. We were setting up that stage and we obviously uh, were looking to access uh, stallions. We'd gone out and bought uh, two uh, Sophony and Dangers Hour from America. And uh, we're uh, looking to Europe and Coolmore, obviously the largest uh, game in town there. And uh, we've sort of formed an alliance mainly through Robert Sangster in those days and Coolmore uh, and came up with a deal to purchase in partnership with them uh, the stay in Ahura uh, and at the time also uh, uh, an agreement to shuttle uh, the horse last tycoon. Last Tycoon was a son of Try My Best, a champion two-year-old for Vincent O'Brien in the 70s that had failed to train on and had been a somewhat disappointing sire. Last Tycoon aside, 
Coolmore was beginning to build a stallion lineup to rival any in Europe. Sadler's Wells and Kerleon's first runners were flying. Why last tycoon? Well, one, he was new um, uh, and we wanted something rather than uh, staying the bed standing there for a number of years. The race record was impeccable, uh, certainly for our standards. And uh, it was a magnificent looking horse, a pedigree uh, we liked and um, thought it would, would mix out here. And that was one of the reasons. An ounce of luck, I suppose, worth a ton of good fortune. But anyway, that's, that's how it turned out. Last Tycoon was the polar opposite of Karu Star. For one, he was a rich chocolate and Karu was a chestnut. The Star Kingdom horse was slabs of muscle and bone with a Herculean head and jowl. The Try My Best stallion was European refinement and reminiscent of his dam sire, the brilliant and diminutive Mill Reef. And he was an outstanding racehorse. A King Stan Stakes winner, he had stepped up in trip in one of the first Breeders' Cup miles. He was also going to be on this revolutionary concept, the shuttle. But wait, was the concept that new? In the 1970s, two stallions famously became the first recognised shuttlers. In New Zealand, American billionaire Nelson Bunker Hunt shipped a son of Dutel to the very first iteration of Waikato Stud. Named Pretondra, he was no beluga. He'd almost won an English derby, and subsequent to his Kiwi adventure, his son, Canyonero, the Caracas Cannonball, won two legs of the American Triple Crown. Pretondra's progeny down under were less impactful. Star European sprinter Deep Diver made the trip to Victoria in the 70s. He too met with little success, though he did manage to sire Oakley plate winner Gleaming Waters. In the 80s, two greys helped things gain momentum. God's Walk was a big-name addition, standing for 15 grand in his first season on the shuttle from Coolmore to Lindsay Park. He was sadly short-lived, but from his shuttle time produced the outstanding St Jude, who would win a Magic Millions in season 89-90 en route to Group 1 glory. John Massara's Kenmare was a different proposition. He was a proven commodity, a star sire in France, and, as last tycoon took his first mouthful of Hunter Valley grass, was in the process of wrapping up his second Gallic size premiership on the bounce. Bluebird also shuttled in the same season as Last Tycoon, so he was exotic, but not too exotic for breeders, and on balance the refined brown horse with the snip was the best racing shuttle stallion to set foot in Australia to that point. He was very popular. I, I can't remember the exact number. I know it was, uh, in fact, uh, initially Kilmore said we couldn't cover any more than I think it was about 70 or 80 um, because that was you know sort of the numbers at those stages uh, and also uh, a shuttle uh, concept was in its infancy and they, uh, they were worried about you know wearing the horse out as we got into the season we had oh, I suppose uh, well over 100 bookings and we, we felt we had to honour some of them so I approached Christy Grassick who was a manager and said to him that you know, the horse was thriving here. Uh, he'd improved in conditions with a bit of sun on his back out in the colonies. Um, <laughs> I would guarantee that uh, we could cover another, you know, 20 or 40 mares and that when he went back, they'd be ecstatic with the condition that the horse would be in better condition having done the season here than when he arrived. And um, cut a long story short, we did get them to agree to that and, uh, the rest is history. And of course, you know, nowadays they cover 200 or, or 
even more, 250. And uh, so it was quite revolutionary in, in a lot of ways. Uh, so you're to blame. I don't say we're to blame, but uh, <laughs> it was the start. I mean, we were one of the few. I mean, in the old days, Colin Hayes stood uh, God's oh. walk with more and Sangster. But then there was a, a lapse of a few year, number of years, and I suppose we were the next one with um, uh, Last Tycoon, and that sort of tended to open the floodgates. Oh, sorry, we had Nora too. Ahanora was a chestnut son and a Jinskis conqueror in the champion stakes, Lauren Zaccio. He had pulled himself up from blue-collar semi-obscurity to become a rising star in Great British and Irish breeding, and a particular favourite of Robert Sangster. Uh, at the time, uh, Arrowfield owned Ray Ora Stud, or a controlling interest in Ray Ora Stud in New Zealand. And John Massara approached us when we had, uh, had uh, Ahanora and said, he need, desperately needed to stay in there, proven stay in, um, and he did a deal with us uh, that uh, he would stand the first couple of years over in New Zealand, and John would, um, you know, guarantee a certain number of mares of his own to him. Um, John had a, you know, very good broodmare band, uh, so we thought that was, uh, you know, made quite good sense, and we sent a few of our own mares over to him, um, and then he came over, I think, three years later to... Yeah, the third year, and unfortunately he had a paddock accident and shattered a hind paston and had to be put down. The full impact of Ahanora's loss wouldn't be felt for three years. At the time of his death, the colt from Rose of Jericho was seven months old on Lionstown Stud in Ireland. At three years of age, he would become only the second horse to run in the Kentucky Derby and the Derby at Epsom. Named Dr Devious, he won Epsom's version for his owners Sydney and Jenny Craig. Yes, that Jenny Craig, and would eventually become a dual champion sire in Italy. Light is important for far more than just vision. Stabled horses often fall short of good light. Scientifically developed, Equilume's smart stable lights help strengthen the horse's natural circadian rhythms to ensure that every cell in the body functions optimally, keeping your horse healthy from the inside out. The blue light in Equilume's revolutionary lighting products positively influences muscle tone, coat, immunity, respiratory health, behaviour and much more. So head to www.equilume.com to learn how Equilume performance lighting will give your horses the competitive edge. Last Tycoon would not want for opportunity quality-wise. At the similar time, we negotiated a, a package of broodmares. Some, I think, were Roberts and some Coolmore partnership. Uh, I think it was, from memory, about 10 or a dozen, uh, which we uh, purchased and brought out in Australia mainly to to feed that, that, um, those stallions. They put up a probably a, a number of probably 20 or 30 odd mares that could be purchased. And uh, we went through them. And at the time, Tree Williams was a vet um, partner of, you know, Randwick Equine, Percy Sykes, et cetera, et cetera. Treve used to be a consultant to us and uh, uh, a bit employed to uh, vet our horses. And uh, he, he had a large input to, to um uh, the physicality of the mares, um, uh, and uh, we, with a bit of luck or good 
guidance or whatever ended up with these dozen odd mayors, which, um, you know, certainly half a dozen of them were, were um, uh, tremendous, you know, performers. The offspring of those mayors would change the face of racing in the Southern Hemisphere. More on that in a future annuals. As Last Tycoon was covering his first book of Australian mares, while 67 two-year-olds were being readied for an extraordinary sale in Sydney, while Zabil was looking to step up from a third to impressionism and spend a dime in a three-year-old Colts and Gildings quality at Sandown, a blue-blooded Colt was putting the final Group 1 flourish to a season that would see him nab European champion three-year-old sprinter honours. He was the answer to a question John Massara had been asking himself for some time. We had done a study at Arrowfield where we would come to the conclusion, which was, which was nothing bright, that Norman Banser was going to be a, a superstar, that he was already a superstar, and he had all these titles which are now going to start and performing at start. So that, that's a pretty good guy, you know? And so we said, we've got to get into that line somehow. We can't afford a direct son of Norman Banser. We might be able to afford a grandson, right? So we went through and looked at which of the sons of Northern Dancer would progeny would suit Australia and were there in targets. And after analysing all his standings at stud, Northern Dancer's sons at stud, we zeroed in on Danzig as being the one line that liked growth and had a lot of speed. And that was perceived not just by his runners in America, although he still did it, by his runners in Europe. They'd gone to Europe and they'd really succeeded there. So speed, grass, etc. So we, uh, we zeroed in on Danzig, looked at all his two-year-olds and three-year-olds, and out came, out, it shone like a beacon, this horse called Danehill, who had won the Gork and Laurie Stakes, and we're now a group one, of course, uh, it's that a group one at Ascot it's, it's, the, it's a platinum jubilee it's a jubilee uh, jubilee uh, and uh, in those days it was a group three I think and had had uh, run a place in the guineas behind Nashwan and they hadn't studied and they then uh, returned to a sprinting campaign when they realised he wasn't going to be a dark you know they all go for the derby over there and once you fail at the mile and they you know be you back towards sprints and uh, they were heading for the Ladbroke Sprint Cup. And we waited until he won his group one, the Ladbroke Sprint Cup. And we then moved in. Having done the work on the breed and the work on the sub, the sub work on the sons of the of, of Northern Dancer, and then looking for the one that was most suitable for our country, and then looking for the best son we could find pedigree and the performance. In the era before ready access to replays, before email, before many of the communications tools that have made the world a smaller place, it wasn't easy to get a line on the true quality of a horse unless you had help. But this also presents an opportunity if you're willing to take a risk. And without having looked at him, but only from pictures and videos of things we could glean, we didn't want to tell anybody else about this. Internally, we zeroed in on him. And we talked about it and we decided that we would appoint an agent, young agent who would be keen and trustworthy 
and could do the job for us. And that was to be John Ferguson, who ended up being the world chief of Dali after, after finishing his, his, uh, his agency work, uh, his work as an agent. He ended up becoming you know, a, a Dali, a Dali group. And it, we've been great friends for all this time now. But he was the guy that came in to, to, to approach Judmont. Would they sell this horse, this horse Dane Hill? And, uh, and that's how the whole thing started. It's hard to think of a time when Dane Hill wasn't a universal byword for excellence in breeding. But 1989 was that time. It was also when some trans-hemispheric trips occurred that would once again tilt the breeding world on its axis. Late 80s again, John Magny came out to Australia. This is Duncan Grimley, who did stints at Arrowfield and Sedgenhoe in the late 1980s and early 90s. Invited by a guy called David Kendall, who was a part owner of Sedgenhoe at that stage, right. to look at becoming an investor in, in Australia. Um, and Robert was a massive investor and a massive partner of John, so he was all for, you know, Coolmore having a presence, a presence in Australia. I'd been told by Robert Sengston, who was, was a dear friend as well, to go and see these Coolmore people who were getting, really doing things in Europe, because if I could link up with them, I was starting to do a few things right now which would be a very powerful accents, you know, and we could work together on shuttling and that sort of thing. So in the middle of these discussions on Dane Hill, I went off to Ireland, saw them. I had Percy Sykes with me, the late Percy Sykes, Indian City style, and uh, Phil Esplin as well, my, my lawyer and friend, reader. And we'd gone there and we saw uh, the, the uh, Kumal people and almost in the last... Two hours of our meetings we were there for a couple of days. They said, by the way, are you happening? Are you looking at anything at the moment? They said to us, we assumed that we would try and do some shuttles. Uh, there was being, that we, 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 you know, we, uh, structured a contract on the basis that we would own horses 50, 50, if we bought them together, but if they saw, send us a horse that they own, this would be the way we'd handle it. We did some pro forma agreements. That so that we sorted all that out. So that if the right the horse came up that we thought could stand in Australia, we'd, we could plonk him into one of those agreements, and it was already determined. And we had yeah. negotiated it. You see, uh, but as we sort of almost got up to leave, John Magnus said, e "You're looking at anything at the moment in Europe? Seeing we're starting to do things together." And we said, "Yeah, we're looking at it." I thought hard, and I thought we're going to be partners in a few horses with these people. Why would I hold back? I'll do it. So I said, yeah, we'll be Daniel, but it probably wouldn't be of interest to you. Because, you know, American stallion, uh, sprinting horse. And one of them said, oh, look, boss, he's the guy that, uh, he's the horse that uh, won the sprint cup the other day. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And at first blush, it wasn't the sort of horse they'd be interested in. It wasn't a classic horse. Well, yeah, they had Kelly on, yeah, yeah. Sattler's Wells. But outside their normal burger. Yeah. But then they came back and they said, look, if you think he's that good, we're willing to go with you. Let's do it 50-50. We shall leave. And that's how the whole thing, the whole thing began. And I invited him in. I was very open with him. I invited him in. And uh, they thought they had very good contacts at Judmont. They'd be able to help John Ferguson achieve, the, you know, negotiate the purchase and everything else. Anyway, in the end, we bought him and we shuttled him. And that was the end of it. So... 
that, that was it. That's how the thing began. It began with the desktop study of Northern Lanza. They say knowledge is power and that the difference between something good and something great is attention to detail. Plus Vital provides state-of-the-art genetic testing for the thoroughbred industry, used around the world to help make better informed racing and breeding decisions. With top trainers including Danny O'Brien, Malua Racing, Lindsay Park, Kieran Ma, Archie Alexander, Matthew Smith and Jason Warren, all finding the benefit of Plus Vital genetic testing and where the smallest margins matter. Can you afford not to know? To find out more, email us at info at plusvital.com. Indeed, Danehill's pedigree was a late 20th century breeding geek's dream. Not only was he by a son of the great northern dancer, with smatterings of the legendary Rebo and Buck Passer thrown in for good measure, but he was from the family of the little Canadian super sire. I actually bred a horse with a triple of the talent just to prove something to myself, and he was horribly back of the knee. And I went back and couldn't run either. And I went back and had a look at the tumbler herself, and she was quite back at the knee. And Dane Hill was back at the knee. And when he walked out of his box at Percy Sykes was to inspect him for us to determine that we proceed to purchase a knife, I looked at the knee and I looked at him and he said, Son, don't worry about the back of the knee. Star Kingdom was just the same. So I kept my mouth shut and we lived with back of the knee. He got to Australia and people remarked on the fact he was back of the knee. But conditions in Australia don't seem to mitigate against that, you know. So it, it, was, it was okay. Danehill seemed like a slam dunk. High-class racehorse, the bluest of blood, retiring at the time the shuttle was gaining momentum. There was just one catch. He cost £4 million and the bloodstock market was in freefall. It was a huge risk. I was on a mission. I was on a mission to internationalise Australian bloodstock, particularly Arrowfield's bloodstock. And Kenmare was the first move. Dalio was the second move. Kenmare was a champion sire of France, great sovereign line horse, had worked here in Australia before, beautiful outbros. And Dalio was something out of left field from a sire line that was conquering the world. And it was, we thought, which suited local conditions because very few shuttle stadiums have worked out. He was one that we felt good work uh, at this very early stage. We've learned a lot since, of course, all of us. Um, nothing was going to stop me from buying him. He was the right horse for that time. We'd arranged the funding and we were going ahead. So Dane Hill would arrive the next season at Arrowfield's start at Jerry's Plains. Last tycoon, however, would spend just one year in the Sedgenho Valley. There was problems with the, the owner, the French owner, uh, I think apparently had, hadn't agreed initially to the horse shuttling um, and there was a big court case on with him and, and um, Coolmore over the shuttling of the horse or, and so there was a bit of a legal thing and also just after that, um, Sejano had had its problems and major shareholder uh, went into liquidation, which caused problems for, for Sejano. The issues Sejano faced proved terminal, and not long after last tycoon left, the farm had a new owner, 
a man who had been a key figure during the fiduciary roller coaster of the last 18 to 24 months. A little note back would be that Michael Stan was the guy that invented or took to uh, the finance companies leak financing in horses. And, huh. you know, I think his first company approach was custom credit. And back in those days, off it all went. So, yeah, Michael bought all of that to the industry. And in the meantime, he, he ended up being, you know, the bankers to a myriad of people that was uh, trying to get horse finance in the industry. But Michael's banker at that time was a guy called Kevin Maloney, who worked for elders. Oh, and, oh. In, and thank Kevin Maloney now owns Fidgenate Stud, so it's gone full circle in that regard. But Michael ended up, I don't, I'm not saying he inher- inherited um, Fidgenate, he ended up buying Fidgenate, and then um, we started basically running that out of 1990, I think it was. Even Arafield had its challenges. I think I was probably the first general manager to be made redundant. This is Henry Plumtree. John came and had a talk to me in January or February of 1990 and said, look, uh, we're in a world of pain and um, your position, you know, he said, I'm happy for you to stay on until Easter and get the earnings done. And, you know, I mean, at, at the time it was, that was a shock, but it was happening all over the place. By Easter 1990, the industry as a whole was very much in freefall. The 1990 rights and sale was down 43% on 1988. Magic Millions was down 19%. Dalgetty's in Victoria had dropped 37%. And Easter dropped by more than 50. Prize money, in Australia at least, actually was up 13.5% on 1988. Was the gulf just too much? Does prize money even matter? And should we be worried now? Well, I'm one of the few that takes the view that prize money, while important to keep the wheels greased of the industry rolling, and particularly the lower end of the market, I don't think it has that much impact on uh, yearly prices. Um, and I could prove that by showing you a graph of the all orders index over the last 20 years and the Easter average. They absolutely move in unison, with Easter moving slightly after the orders index. I think horses are an asset class whose value moves up and down with the economy rather than with prize money. But of course, we cannot operate without prize money. So prize money is important, but at the end of the day, on average, it only returns you about 40% in Australia, even at today's heightened levels of running costs of, of racing, your, 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 your training costs, training, veterinary and other costs of racing a horse, owners recoup about 40%, even after the rises that we have. So you can see how it can't have a massive impact unless it's prize money that would recoup you 100% of your running costs. And for that, you'd need a doubling of current prize money. It, it, it has an impact, particularly at the lower level. It keeps people in the game at the lower level. But in terms of Easter, that's more impacted by economic cycles. That's what I think. Yeah. And I can prove that to you by asking you to look at recent sales in Europe. 
how is it that they're so high, prices of yearlings, horses in trading, bears, when their prize money is no more than ribbons in comparison to us, right? There's not a massive linkage between prize money and yearling values. I know the regulators like to think every time they give an increase in prize money that it'll help yearlings. It doesn't help yearlings. It helps pe- get pe- keep people in the game. That's what it helps to do. I think the horse industry over many generations and many years has been one of somewhat of a boom and bust industry. Um, mm. But the difference between now and, and then, back then everything was done on finance. So I would yeah. imagine that 80% of the market was financed. And in some cases that finance was running out at, you know, 17, 18%. But if you leave finance to do one of the, the finance companies, you're paying up to 23%. You know, I know that, you know, we had some leased horses at that stage, a friend and I, and, and we were paid 23%, but no one yeah, seemed to um, worry about it at that stage. Until, until you know, all of a sudden there's a correction on Wall Street, which has nothing to do with the horse industry, we all thought, and then all of a sudden the banks are tapping you on the shoulder for the repayments of your money. The stage of the tapping on the shoulder became your neck in a headlock. You know, the, the market would say that it went down 40 to 45%, but if you had sell, then the market was down 75 to 80%. And there were people just going out backwards. That yeah. might happen, you know, next time we get a correction in the market, which is obviously inevitable sometimes, because there's no, there's no, we're near the amount of money that's financed. Most of the money now people are actually paying for. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, we'll have a correction, but I, I doubt very, very much that we'll ever see another crash similar to what we saw then. I think the fundamental point that drives the Australian industry so hard and has an offshoot in the New Zealand industry is that prize money factor. Because it means that trainers, syndicators um, and breeders can go to the marketplace with a product which has a reasonable chance of, of breaking even. But you can't quantify the excitement of 42 people in a syndicated horse winning an Everest. You just simply can't quantify that, particularly in a nation like Australia, which has that not glass half full, but glass overflowing mentality to everything they do. It's a, it's a fantastic environment to work in. Um, I would say that prize money and, and the restructure of the industry, whatever it was 15 years ago, has been the underwriter of the current success. Yes, global investment has come, and that's been a very big part of it. But why has the global investment come? It's come because Australia is seen as a shining light for a racing system and how it should work. Now, if you live in Australia, yes, of course, there are moans and groans and grumbles about racing administrations, and they're never going to get it right, and this bloke hasn't got the tracks in Queensland, right, and blah, 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 blah. But fundamentally, the wagering industry in all of those states will keep driving that prize money thing. And it's about not killing the golden goose. Mm. The golden goose is the punters. Once you kill the punters and you put them off racing, they'll go somewhere else. They'll go to casinos or go to sports betting. And I think sports betting is probably the single biggest problem that racing has looming on its horizon. And the return to, from the TAB in New Zealand, for example, the return to sports betting agencies as opposed to racing, which is decreed by the government in New Zealand, 
is substantially higher than Australia, which is a big impost for the racing industry here. Um, but I think, you, you know, the system in Australia with good race courses, good services, the sort of infrastructure that punters like to deal with, which is why Hong Kong is the biggest wagering jurisdiction, jurisdiction in the world. Japan is so populous because everything is a level playing field. You've got good jockeys, you've got good horses, you've got good services. You bet on it. Yeah. It takes the, it takes the element of chance, it lowers the element of chance. You know, everything, you know, whether you look at the stock market, whether you look at the housing, you know, housing market, whether you look at thoroughbreds, historically, there has been, you know, rises and there has been falls. This is Jonathan Darcy. Now, the fall you talk about, 89 to 90, that's as severe as we've ever seen. I don't think we'll ever see that again. But, yeah, look, I mean, um, things change. If, if, you know, obviously we've got rising interest rates, you know, today in Australia, we've got a change of government, we've got... Yeah, different circumstances. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think we're right at the peak of a, of a market. Now, whether it just plateaus and keeps going at this sort of level for a few years, hopefully that's the case. History will tell you that everything goes up, does come down. So, um, you know, I, I do think, you know, we're, we're very fortunate. As you say, we've got, you know, some great components in the you know, prize money in particularly in Victoria and New South Wales. It's just phenomenal. Um, and I think the confidence in our industry through our stewards and through our um, PRAs is very good. So I think that's that's a positive. But, you know, we, we rely on, you know, a domestic spend uh, and also, you know, with uh, purchases from Hong Kong particularly coming in at that top level. So um, you can't take all those things for granted. Things in Hong Kong probably aren't travelling as smoothly as they once were. So um, that's obviously you know, something we're, we're watching very closely. But you know, fortunately, the domestic market's as strong as I can certainly ever remember it. Yes. In my time, I've never seen prize money go down. So, yeah, you know, it, it, it's like house prices, really. I mean, you know, they may not keep going up at whatever level is current, but, you know, they very rarely come down. So I think prize money, as we know it, is here to stay. Um, that will shield a lot of the people and, um, and again, encourage more people to come into the industry if they can, you know, make it work. Like if you can, part, you can win one race in either Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and probably pay for 12 months of your training fees, well, that's a great result for anybody to be. Well, up till recently, uh, you know, the low interest rates, um, the, 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 the uh, uh, success of the stock market, real estate market, etc., cetera, uh, whether COVID made people save money or what, there seemed to be, there seemed to be plenty of money left around people um, at, at, at spending. You talk to most of the trainers or business people and they say they've never seen so much cash sort of running around. I suppose the only danger for us at the moment is inflation. Today, the strength is syndication, of course. This is John Pitfield. Which puts the bottom in the market. Um, you know, the, t today, it's a real market. So the, those horses weren't sold then. Today, they still aren't sold. They just they tend to transfer just ownership to the trainer. But the market, uh, particularly with the overseas 
influence today, which wasn't there then, and the strength of the syndication, it's so much stronger. Yeah. And we're running an interest with low interest rates, so you know, money's cheap. It was dear back then. It was a very different environment. That the, the, all commodities have, particularly in agricultural commodities in Australia, have, have traditionally have peaks and troughs. Mm. Or it's, it's a wave, um, a wave graph. And in those days, that prior to that, that, that was fairly true. The market went up and down. Following that, I think more start, more than prize money, I think it's the overseas interest and the success of the Australian horse on the international stage that has attracted that overseas money, which has probably had a, a, a bigger effect on the stability than prize money. The prize money has really, particularly the increase in prize money in the country, has really stimulated the, the, the syndication market. I don't know whether there's a memory of long enough for it to have a, a legacy of fear uh, because people have short memories. Yeah. Uh, what would happen uh, if interest rates went back to that sort of level? I, I don't know. I think it might be pretty scary. I always say that we lost a generation of investors through that time because the word bloodstock was a dirty word and it was full of people who had tried to skip the market for whatever they could get out of it and it had crashed and a lot of people had been badly hurt by it and it weren't necessarily bloodstock related people, dentists, lawyers, barristers, accountants, you name it. There were a lot of professionals in that syndicate who vowed they would never touch bloodstock again. And you know, I, I, I really believe that we lost a whole generation. And as you know, it took Australia quite a few years to get back on its feet, and, and New Zealand is still getting back on its feet 30 years later. So the impact of that time wasn't just about the stock market crash. It was about the way that we behaved during the stock market crash and after the stock market crash that stenciled on our foreheads how, how the world was going to perceive us for the next 20 years. I've never seen so many Americans involved in our industry ever. This is Duncan Ramage. So there's international, there's international money coming in from various, various uh, areas. Uh, we've had a sustained growth for a much longer period than the Australian thoroughbred industry has probably ever had. It's normally an eight, nine year cycle. I think we're on year 15, 16. Yeah. Um, it's probably insular at the moment because of the foundation of the prize money, um, probably greater economic practice is probably going to have a bigger bearing on the sustainability of racing than racing itself. You know, that would be mindful of the Russian situation. Um, we're going to head into an oil crisis, we're going into a food crisis, you know, Ukrainian grain is not getting through to Europe. Uh, we've got a change of government. Um, some of that new government probably are not uh, likely to be as supportive of racing as others, although they should, because if you look at the receipts of all these mares, yearlings, foals that are traded, imagine the GST that's collected on those. Then you've got the, the, the tax on prize money. A lot of that prize money 
as individuals, you know, and a lot of it's also to business. So a lot of, and there's betting turnover taxes. So a lot of government, a lot of many multiple streams of government, government revenue come currently from racing. So they don't, what they don't want to cut off the golden goose. There, there have always been ties between America and Australia and New Zealand, which are, you know, notably stronger now, but that a lot of the more recent investment from global investment in Australia is based on that phenomenal recovery of the racing sector in, in, in Australia, which is now probably the single best model for racing horses in the world if it becomes a return. Um, is it sustainable? A lot of people would say, who cares? I mean, at the end of the day, you've got a model there which is based on a very sophisticated betting system in a country that bets. And then you've got the offset of an international community if it looks at Australian racing and wants to bet there as well. It's a very, it's a very good foundation uh, for backing an industry back into itself and, and, and re regrowing it. Unfortunately, New Zealand hasn't been that lucky. They haven't got the population. You haven't got the scale. Well, they haven't got the scale, but they haven't got the betting population either. Mm. Um, it's a bit of a generalisation to say that they're largely Scottish Presbyterian by birth, but um, there is an element of that in New Zealand which you don't get in America. Um, and I'm not saying that Australia is a national, nationally sort of um, reckless or anything like that, but they love betting. And the betting platforms reflect that. Yeah. In New Zealand, the betting platform here is tiny and it's not that sophisticated and it's always playing catch up. So the recovery in New Zealand, we're getting off track here, but the recovery in New Zealand is more about um, materializing those land-based assets, which is obsolete race courses, et cetera, et cetera, and putting that into a fund that can, that can basically, um, you know, Get the flow of money back into the into the onto the racecourses. The instance that I think it's probably uh, things that you've heard from old men. You know, this is Joe Walls. If you're entering the share market, don't do it on borrowed money. And yeah. I think same with, with same with bloodstock. You know, if you can afford to buy them, sure, go ahead and buy them. But if you haven't got the money, it's very unwise to borrow the money to do it. And I think that's what forced their hand in many ways because a lot of the people were borrowing it on the basis that what they were buying was going to be worth more at some stage in the future. And you know as well as I do that that's a pretty tall order to ask for in this case. And what about the man that had drawn the short straw of being one of the public faces of the collapse of an entire industry? Bart Cummings' near fall from grace was a lesson to many. And I think... In hindsight, and I'm sure he would have loved to have, you know, got some contracts in place and had agreements signed by the accountants. I think it's fair to say that he was naive in setting up uh, the agreements that he had. I mean, it was all done on a handshake and a nod and a wink. And, you know, I mean, Anthony Cummings was bidding on some of these horses at sales and he had representatives of the accounting firm standing right beside him telling him to go again. Now, for some reason, the lawyers didn't see that as, you know, uh, tying the accountants to the the actual sale of the horses. So, you know, I mean, there's no way in the world that anyone would be entering an agreement without getting something in writing today. But back then, you know, Bart didn't have anything in writing. And that's what 
ultimately cost him, um, yeah, cost him severely. Bart was already an all-time great trainer. The Lazarus act he pulled from the Night of the Stars onwards has the making of an HBO drama. Not only would he win the Sydney Premiership in that very season, but before his passing in 2015, he would train a further five winners of Australia's greatest race, the Melbourne Cup. He would win his second, third, fourth and fifth Cox Plate. He would win Derbys, Oaks and Caulfield Cups. He would win his first international group race. He would train two horses of the year and a champion that would have claimed that honour had he not had the misfortune to race at the same time as Black Caviar. That star, So You Think, along with saintly, viewed, Catalan opening and a host of others, was raised by Bart's greatest ally post-Night of the Stars, Dato Tanchin Nam, who returned to racing at just the right time. Well, Dato is a very shrewd man, and he always had a phrase, you sell it the sound of music and you buy it the sound of cannons. So when things are a bit tough, you come into a market and you'll cry. And Dado had stepped away from the thoroughbred market somewhere in the 70s, early 80s. I didn't know him, of course, before my time. But he re-emerged in 1991, straight after the Night of the Stars. And then, yes, he was going to buy some horses um, to put in Bart's stable to support support Bart because he remembered you know, his time with Think Big. And, and so he re-emerged at that time. And he came, he pulled the horses through me, or Bart assigned me to buy his horses, in actual fact. And he was originally only going to have three horses every year. Well, that grew. You know, of the Zenith, there was probably 50 horses on the books. So from 1991 through to, through to his death, are now still ongoing through the family. The Colours, the Tans, and Dado have been great supporters of various generations of Cummingses. Yeah, the Chidnell was, uh, I think the, 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 the racing colours really say it all. This is Anthony Cummings. He was a keen chess player and he found uh, the old man uh, the most intriguing fellow to play the game with. And they played, they didn't play on a chess board so much, but in life. Uh, and the, uh, and at different times they take on the, 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 the mask of a different player. So, you know, you think you're doing something that's going to go straight forward, but it turns up going diagonal or two steps left and one right. So, um, the, um, uh, I think they both played the game very well. Uh, they both got what they were after. Uh, and um, they, uh, it was one of those sort of rare uh, things in racing where they both did well. Bart became a champion sire and grandsire as well and the Think Big Colours have continued to be carried by coming stable stars for multiple generations, possibly the greatest legacy of this time. Bard was ageing and getting a bit sick. He struck up a trainer partnership with his grandson, James, and Dana was very, very supportive of that. And then when James went out on his, on his own, he continued to be supportive in many ways, um, financially and buying horses as well. Um, and... You know, James was rightly headhunted by Godolphin. They saw a, a sparring talent and um, took him over. But um, we still have horses with, with Anthony. The, the companies has always been connected in my time with, with Dado Tan, which is since 1991 or 1990. 
the Cummingses have always had horses and always been part of the picture. And the man that stood by his father's side throughout that tumultuous season would soon forge his own path. In fact, in the Leilani Lodge stables in 1990, a son of Alounder Bay, a horse Anthony Cummings' father trained to win a new market, was the vehicle to take Anthony to the next level. Yeah, well, he was the first uh, real one in a final car, and he was just speed in, in, in all its forms. The uh, head strong without being too hard. Yeah, just always trying a lot of faith, a lot of time, time for, uh, and um, it worked out that he came to me when uh, I took my licence out, and it was a good result for everyone. Season 1989-90 marked the changing of the guard in many ways. While the offspring of Australia's three greatest trainers were soon to forge their own paths, the industry was rationalising, and the traditional bloodstock makeup of the country was altering fundamentally. The mares covered by last tycoon in the spring of 89, as he shuttled from his Irish base, and those that would be covered by Danehill the following spring, would cause a tsunami. And while that was happening, another Irish visitor would have the Australian and New Zealand establishment questioning tradition itself. On the next annuals. I'm getting a lump in my throat telling you this. I think that would probably still be nearly a record today, five Group 1 winners out of their own brute mares. But he was the first winner. And he was the dominant player. And that was probably the most exciting day and remains the most exciting day in my racing career. And I said to him, people arrived. 